Believe it or not, gardening season has begun. You certainly couldn't tell that from yesterday's Arctic bomb or whatever I was told it was called. I know this because I went to Lowe's last week and the place is busy like a hive of bees with all the green stuff coming out. And I also know this because an organic website, a, a website for organic gardening, said that in South Jersey, you start a tomato plant from seed sometime in the last two weeks to around today. By starting a tomato plant from seed, they eventually get strong enough and, and hardy enough to deal with all of the elements that, that they experience outside in the real soil. The other thing that garden, gardeners do around this time of year is prepare the garden bed, prepare the soil itself. Repairs to gardens are made during the off-season as well. Garden walls, garden structures of various kinds. The goal, of course, is to ensure once the garden is in full swing, a full and bountiful harvest sometime later in the summer or fall beautiful fruits, vegetables, and flowers to eat or to enjoy. The reason I'm talking about gardens this morning is because James has introduced to us last Sunday the idea of a harvest. And harvest, of course, points to things coming out of the ground for the benefit of others. In discussing the new birth, James has described you as the first fruits of God's new harvest. You're a picture of the garden in the new world that's to come. James wants you to know how to thrive in Christ because God has begun this good work in you. And he continues that theme in this morning's passage on how you are to grow as God's first fruits. So the title of my sermon this morning is How to Produce Righteous Fruit. In this morning's sermon, you might say that when it comes to heavenly vegetables, as it were, we tend to be forgetful about what makes for a good garden environment. I know I do. I believe this is because of our own sinful desires and because of the sinful world that we live in. As a result, we need to be reminded on how to make or to produce the fruit that pleases God rather than that which comes naturally to us, which is displeasing to God. I hope by this morning's sermon that you will learn how you should live, and not just live, but thrive as God's first fruit harvest in a world that is hostile towards him. With this in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word, this morning's scripture portion comes from James chapter 1, verse, beginning at verse 19 through verse 21. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's give our attention to it. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for loving us so much as to not leave us without guidance, but giving us such a clear and helpful word of instruction. And for those who are indeed born again, it is a reminder of the kind of people that you want us to be. And for those that are seeking and have not yet found their home in you, these words perhaps are a shocking discovery of a life that we've never had. 
So Lord, I pray that you would now make the words of my mouth and the thoughts and reflections on each one of our hearts pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How to produce righteous fruit. Well, gardeners have skills or disciplines. It takes work to maintain and build a garden. Here are four disciplines or skills that you need. And the first one, to produce righteous fruit, you need to stay in the garden. Seeds and plants and fruits don't just grow anywhere. I mean, you'll have the occasional volunteer, but the best place to grow is the place that's been prepared for you. Sometimes these are raised garden beds with soil that's been mixed with loam and peat and fertilizer and all kinds of good, rich earth. Sometimes we'll even put worms in there. That's the best place for you to grow. You need to stay in the garden. We see this in our text in the first phrase, which is easy to miss if you're reading quickly. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. James is pointing out with a command something that you need to know. And apparently, you might be prone to miss or forget. The phrase know this is a command that tells you there is something that you need to pay attention to, which if you're not told to pay attention to it, You won't. And that thing is, you need to stay where God wants you to stay in order to grow. I might paraphrase it this way. James is saying, what I'm about to tell you is very important. And many of you aren't paying attention. You need to know this. You could also paraphrase it like this. What I'm about to tell you You already know, but you, many of you, have forgotten. Samuel Johnson somewhere writes that the instruction or the information we need, most of us, is not new. It's simply something that we need to be reminded of. This idea of Samuel Johnson is really what James is getting at, I think. What James is about to tell you, you're in danger of forgetting. It isn't that you didn't know it in the first place. This becomes a little more clear when you compare the twin verse to verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. It's twin is verse 16, which we looked at last week. James 1.16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James intends these two verses to be read together. As I said, they're twins. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Know this, my beloved brothers. The word for deception can also mean to wander or to go astray. If you want proof of this, you can take a look at the parable that Jesus tells of the hundred sheep that the farmer had, and one of them was deceived. He went astray. And because the shepherd loved all of the sheep, not just some of them, he left the 99 that weren't deceived, the undeceived sheep in the sheepfold, And the one wandering sheep he went after over hill and valley and went to rescue that one sorry lost sheep. You can also have proof of this idea of wandering and deception by reading the last two verses of James. The last verses and the first verses of a book tend to tell us a lot. And the last verses of James tells us that one of his main reasons for writing this letter was that many of us We're in danger of wandering from the path. That is to say, many of us are in danger of being deceived. Know this, you're in danger of wandering. That's how they're to be read. Be aware, in case you're not, that you're wandering from the path. I was recently traveling in another city, and I've I've never seen this before, but it was just stuck there on the side of a wall. Stop looking at your phone. Keep your head up. Watch where you're going. (laughs) Just stuck there. I thought, the person 
who's looking at his phone. This was like a, a, like a city guidance for all the residents of the city. The person who's looking at his phone is not reading the sign on the wall. It was very strange. But the person who's looking at his phone while walking down the sidewalk where the sign that he's not reading is warning him not to do what he's doing is in danger of wandering either off the sidewalk or running into you. Some of you have probably had this happen to you before. What you're supposed to know then in verse 19 is that there is a path in which you are to walk and the path is the path of a born-again believer. Don't miss this. James is about to describe behaviors that believers should not do. These are behaviors that are characteristic of a life that wanders from God. And you're to know that the best place for you to be is not wandering from God's way, but staying in the garden where you can bear good fruit. I'm reminded here of the parable of the sower. In that famous story, seed is scattered by the sower, and the seed represents the word of God or the gospel. Depending on where the seed landed in the parable, it either did or didn't grow very well. There's one spot, the good soil, we'll call that growing in the garden, where the seed was able to bear much fruit, 30, 60, or even 100 times what was planted. All the other places where the seed lands in Jesus' famous parable in some way or another was exposed to the danger that inhibit growth, either the elements or foreign intruders or various pests which attack and thwart the growth that God desires. A few other comments I think are helpful here as we think about this first task or discipline of growing righteous fruit in your life. This garden that I'm talking about is the community of believers. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Don't wander, my beloved brothers. That's plural. So the, the best place for you to grow is with other Christians in the church. That is to say, the gathering of believers in the local church. Yes, on Sunday, but also throughout the day, throughout the week, as we come together for prayer and mutual encouragement. There's safety in the church of God's newborn people. There's safety in the community of faith. The messianic community of the 12 scattered tribes, James 1.1, that's the place where growth is ideal. Second, the garden is one which is in the midst of conflict. I said that there's safety in the church, but you know the church in this age in this world, is in a hostile, negative environment. Theologians call it the church militant. It's the church at war. And so while it is a, a safe place of garden growth, it's a garden in a battlefield. There's no place in this life that's ultimately safe. Still, the things with which the church has for you, the word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are the best means to ensure good and godly and righteous growth even while you grow in the midst of your enemies. Well, what follows the command to know describes the next discipline or task of, of the gardener. Namely, number two, you produce righteous fruit by maintaining the proper temperature. Now I'm playing with this garden illustration, so work with me here. What happens when someone gets angry? Well, we say he loses his cool, which is to say that man once was at a, a proper temperature, but in losing his temper, that temperature gets elevated. He gets hot under the collar. You can see steam coming out of his ears. In fact, physiologically, an angry person's face often turns quite red because all the blood is rushing to the head. So the proposal James has for you is that you are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
That's what it says in verse 19. This is a triple play of godly growth. Think about it. Quick to listen. The ESV here has the word hear, which I really like that translation. Quick to hear, slow to speak. And he ends with the most important one. Slow to become angry. I like the King James on that last phrase, maybe a little better. Slow to wrath. Slow to wrath. What I'm hearing here, what I'm seeing in this passage, is that the temperature for the ideal temperature for godly Christian growth, for for producing fruit, involves the 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 these these sorts of behaviors or actions which restrain your words open your ears and avoid this thing which he calls the wrath or the anger of man like plants people are sensitive to temperature changes i'm told that the human body operates within a very narrow band of an ideal temperature about 10 degrees so if, that, if you pin that at, at 97 degrees Fahrenheit, if you go up 5 degrees, you're in trouble. And if you go down 5 degrees, you can't stop shivering. And in either place, at, at either ends of that 10-degree spectrum, if you don't change it soon, you will die. And likewise, the fruit that God desires to see in your life if you go out of this ideal temperature range of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, all the beautiful newborn fruit in your life will shrivel up and die and become worthless. I'm thinking here with verse 20 as you look at this text, for the anger, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm, I'm thinking of a controlled environment, not just a garden now, but maybe even a greenhouse where the temperature is finely tuned for the perfect growth of a Christian. This emotional temperature is one which requires you to avoid the passions of your fallen nature. And yes, it involves anger, being angry yelling, screaming, shouting, banging your fist, slamming the door. That's outward anger. Or seething, resentment, grinding your teeth. The silent treatment. That's inward anger. Those sorts of emotional responses are far too hot for Christian growth. It's the wrong place to be for thriving in God's garden. I think of it this way too. Producing the righteousness of God, which is apparently the goal, we're going to get to that in a moment, requires something besides the anger or wrath of man. It requires receiving, hearing God's input and being silent as you do. So the program that you're running in your brain, I'm calling that the wrath of man. So yes, there are these outbursts or inbursts, depending on your personality. But I think James, and I'm going to try to prove this in a little bit, I think James wants us to get past the emotional snapshot of anger and look at a general orientation of running your own life on your own terms. That's too hot. Now, you're going to have plenty of examples around you of people that are living this way. But that's not the way God wants you to live. You're a newborn creature in God's new harvest creation. And he's given you a different set of instructions. And the temperature on this plant cannot exceed certain limits. God wants to give you his input. So open your ears. 
Be teachable. Turn down the heat and listen to what he wants to tell you. And by the way, it's a famous saying. It's not unique to me. You've all heard it. You have two ears and one mouth. Let that ratio guide your life. You should listen twice as much as you talk. It's a good warning to preachers, too. It's interesting, these verses, 19, 20, and 21, they're centering on this idea of anger. And it seems quite specific, and if you're just reading James for the first time, it might strike you as a little abrupt, but it's not. I want you to see 19, 20, and 21 as kind of an archway to the entire book of James. There's something about James in letting God be in control of my life Anger being that sort of capital sin that proves that God is not in control of your life. He wants you to start with this. It's not quite a table of contents. But almost every single instruction in James following verse 21 can be tied back to these three verses. There's also another temperature word here in verse 21 we'll talk about this more in a second put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness now this is this is a christian word this is a word that well we need to restore this word to our everyday use we should be able to talk about someone and say That woman, that man is a meek person. What an amazing person. It's not used enough. Meekness refers not to weakness, as I've taught on this before, but that sort of self-controlled personality. Maybe I'll put it this way. A spirit-controlled personality. One that is able to see the, the, the circumstances and situations of my life from an eternal perspective and because of that perspective is not easily moved. I've said before that meekness is sort of like someone being a black belt in karate or some other martial art. But the black belt's in the trunk. It's under my bed. And they stand there and there's something about them that says, you know, they could exercise an enormous amount of power at the moment, but they're choosing not to. They're restrained by the Spirit of God. So that's that calm, collected temperature that produces the ideal growth for a Christian. Meekness and humility, you see, are the first two virtues of the Christian life. There's no being born again without meekness and humility. I mean, the new birth begins with a kind of human acknowledgement I can't do this on my own. That program I've been running isn't working for me. So the new birth starts with getting rid of anger and receiving something like meekness from the Lord. You know, meekness and humility launched the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And the Sermon on the Mount is the charter of the Christian life. James, more than any other book in the New Testament, channels or evokes or echoes the teachings of his older brother Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Meekness is a kind of fountain virtue in the way that anger, I think, is a sort of fountain vice. Anger and the self-control that underlies it represents every single sin of human pride. And meekness is the opposite. James is describing the life of someone who follows Jesus. It's a person who maintains a temperature of a demeanor, a spiritual atmosphere in this person's life that trusts God above all else. The wrath of man has no place in such a life. Meekness 
teachability and humility are the chief virtues. Before I leave this second point about temperature, I want to give a couple of examples from the Bible that show the importance of what I'm talking about in terms of temperature and our emotions. I'm thinking, first of all, uh, one example that you might like is the story of the manna in the wilderness. Now, I love this story because the word manna in Hebrew basically means, what the heck is this? As the people received God's provision, they, in Hebrew, they said, manna? And it's like, okay, we're going to call it that. When I was little, we had a cat, and we, got, we acquired the cat when my dad was out of town. And so he got back on Sunday night. We got the cat on Friday, and so for that weekend, we called the cat No Name. Well, when dad got home, he liked that name. And so the cat forever remained, and it's a favorite pet. No name. Well, that's manna, basically, is the same idea. It's no-name food. Well, the people, as you can tell by their response, manna, they didn't like what God had provided. Do you know they complained and grumbled and were angry at God for feeding them? Every single day, God gave them plenty of food. And whether they didn't like the taste or the color, or the texture. I mean, you know how kids are. It could be any one of those three. Maybe they're just in a bad mood. They didn't feel like eating at that time. And so they were angry with God and with Moses for giving them not no food to eat, but food that wasn't their preferred food. Well, that's the wrath of man. Another example is Job. For all of his efforts to trust God in the midst of his affliction, Job became so angry with God that he started blaming God for his problems. He actually accused God, the holy God, of wrongdoing. Can you believe that? He had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, and I find it interesting when you read the story of Job God actually never explains to Job what was going on. Only the reader has that perspective. You know, the Lord allowed Satan to come and and penetrate that hedge of protection that God had set up for him. So, but while God never explains why he permitted Job to suffer, God also doesn't punish Job for his sin. He does confront him, however, with the simple truth which relates to our passage. Here's what you need to know, Job. I am God. You are not. I am God. And you are not. And in that moment, whether Job was born again or had a born-again experience, I don't know, but in that moment, Job's response was, I put my hand on my mouth and I repent in dust and ashes. Think about it. He stopped talking. He stopped talking. He started listening. And that's the meekness that bears fruit for God. There are so many warnings in the scriptures about anger, and listening, commands to listen, the dangers of excessive speech. The proverb says, where words are many, sin is not absent. How many fights have I been in, in with my wife, with my children, with my friends? I've actually had that verse running through my mind while I say one more thing. I'm really fond of what I have to say. God says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This is through Solomon in Ecclesiastes. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they have no idea what they're doing. You know, that's what happens when we're all talk and our ears are plugged. We have no idea what we're doing. 
How many times have I corrected one of my children and after they meekly received my fatherly correction, I found out that what I thought was the problem and what I thought I had corrected, I was completely wrong. It's hard to be a parent of godly children. So many warnings in the Bible about the tongue, about the virtue of being restrained, about patience. You know, the word for patience in the New Testament literally means, back to the idea of a temperature, big heat. If you're a scientist, it's a heat sink. This is like a ceramic. You know, you put it on the space shuttle or a rocket's nose. When you come back into the atmosphere, it can withstand a lot of heat. So as Christians, we're to be coated with NASA ceramics. We're to be heat sinks. Soaking up all the heat of this angry world with the meekness of that distant country, which is heaven. So many instances could be cited here. I'll point you to Psalm 39 for your own study at a later point. David wrestling with what to say and when to say it and how to say it. And finally he speaks. And he gets it right. We're learning about heavenly gardening this morning. Our text is James 1.19-21 and two disciplines are crucial to the project of producing righteous fruit staying in the boundary of God's garden and knowing that going astray or being deceived are very real possibilities. Maintaining the proper temperature, which is poignantly illustrated, but it's only the tip of the iceberg with this one concern about anger or the wrath of man. Really, I see this as a kind of a lens on the entire human project human improvement. This is the Tower of Babel. There's no place for earth to heaven structures in the Christian life. That's the wrath of man. The third discipline that you need is to remember the goal. I've touched on this already. This goal is stated in verse 20. It's to produce the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Well, first of all, I think it's your character. It's you resembling God. The righteousness of God is those qualities found in a human being gradually transformed from a sinner to a saint. It changes someone who's fighting against God to someone who's fighting for God. When you produce the righteousness of God in this matter of human anger, you begin to resemble God's, God's being. You think his mind. The, the beautiful, uh, our, our, our worship team does a great job every week in picking songs that align so well with the preached word. The mind of Christ is what we're talking about here. The righteousness of God is more than your character, though. It's right things in the world. So think of it this way. Once you become formed into a godlike person, we'll say a godly person, as you move into this sphere, your, maybe your, your professional vocation, which you're called to do as a student, as you study this topic, science or art or history, As you, whatever your hobbies are, your, your avocations, when, you, when you're at play, what you like to do, what you do for fun, the standard of God come out of your hands and your feet. You just, you make good things. You do good things. You think good things. And 
And it's kind of like there's, there's a world of color that emerges in, in a gray and gloomy society from the righteous person who's building the righteousness of God. The systems of the world are changed. The traditions of the world are altered. The practices, the mores, the, the ethics bend back towards God instead of away from Him. And I also think producing or accomplishing the righteousness of God were camped out here in the second half of verse 20 requires that you, you actually possess God's own righteousness. This is the major theme of the book of Romans, by the way. Romans 1.17 For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For the just will live by faith. The righteous live by faith. If you want to see this in James, it's James 2.23 where Abraham is in believing God counted or reckoned. God's righteousness is imputed to James. It's a foreign, alien righteousness. So while it's your character, there's something about it that's never really fully yours because it's ultimately God's and God's alone to give. Abraham is counted as righteous by faith. He believes that God has what he doesn't. And then he acts accordingly. This is the gospel. So accomplishing the righteousness of God means the new birth, insert last Sunday's sermon. By his sovereign will, he, he affects something that you can never do. And then this transformational personal experience of your own righteousness, and then you share that out in your callings, public and private, and bringing righteousness to the world. You produce righteous fruit when you remember that this is the goal. The whole Christian program, Jesus summarized, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. The things that get bundled up in that horrible thing we're calling the wrath or the anger of man, you can have those things in their place after you seek the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, righteous be your name. Your kingdom come. Your rightness, the rectitude, the, the standards of God. May, may, may that characterize me and my world and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The last practice that we'll look at this morning in our text for bearing or producing righteous fruit is proper maintenance. Now, this is the bane of every gardener. You can start well, but you've got to be steady all season. You've got to be steady in keeping this garden up. You've got to put time in the bank Look at verse 21. Proper maintenance requires your personal involvement. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's something you have to do. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. There's a lot in this verse. In my original plan, I was going to preach a whole sermon on verse 21, but I'll be brief here. Maintenance means to receive with meekness the implanted word. So, implanted means something's already happened. That's verse 18. So, you're required to take what God's given you 
and make something out of it. Theologians talk about justification, which is your salvation, is monergistic. It's God alone working in your life. You can't bring yourself to the new birth. He does that. But sanctification, or growth in the Christian life, that's the topic for this morning, is synergistic. It's a cooperative effort. You're partnering with God to make this garden and to make it thrive. Verse 18 talks about the sovereign work of God. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Verse 21 tells you how you become those, that first fruits. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive what He's given you. Reach out for it. Lay hold of it. Treasure it. Make much of it. So proper maintenance requires your effort. You have to be an active participant in this gardening process. And there's a positive and a negative that's highlighted in verse 21. The negative, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Positive, receive with meekness the implanted word. This is a classic New Testament teaching. It's, it's all through the New Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as putting off and putting on. In fact, this word, put away, is speaking of a kind of change of clothes. So, that old coat, take it off. And the new coat, put it on. For that reason, sometimes... uh, Commentators will see in this passage putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness an allusion to Christian baptism. Now, as a reminder, as a church, we practice all three kinds of baptism, pouring, sprinkling, and immersion. We don't think the mode really matters. Some people do, though, and when, when they do, I'm, I'm quick to ask them why they think that's the case. I personally feel that an emphasis on baptism by immersion takes away some of the power, the potency, and the significance of that amazing sacrament. There's no amount of submersion and immersion that will wash away all of your filth. So what I like about the mode which I prefer, which is pouring. Again, there's no one right mode here. So this is me talking to you as a pastor, giving you some some guidance. By pouring, it shows that the only kind of washing or cleansing is one that comes from heaven. So we're not even going to try to imitate that by our human or our earthly actions. The two things that you're to put away or that are to be removed from your garden are filth, which is a word for, it's just a very graphic word for dirt, and this phrase rampant wickedness. Filth here, I believe, could refer to something that's good, but in the wrong place and in the wrong proportions, it's bad. I'm told that there are no such things as weeds in a garden. It's just a plant that's growing where you don't want it to grow. That's what filth is. So take, take for example, anger. You know, Jesus was angry. Jesus overturned the, the tables in the temple. Moses was angry. Moses is actually a good example. Because Moses is angry, and he's called the meekest man alive. But then another time Moses was angry, God told him to speak to the rock, and he was so angry at the complaining people. Honestly, I I have trouble blaming Moses for this, but 
he did wrong. Instead of speaking to the rock, which would show the power of God, Moses struck the rock with his staff in anger. And for that, that instance of the wrath of man, Moses was kept from the promised land and could only see it from a distance on Mount Pisgah. The point being is that filth is only filth when it's the wrong place, the wrong proportion, the wrong time. I think filth not only refers to excessive emotions, though, I think it can refer to sexual pleasure. Actually, this Greek word for filth in the Old Testament is sometimes translated in our word for abomination, which is one of the more common ways the Old Testament describes sexual sin. As with anger, the point is this. Sex is not filthy. Sexual relations between a man and a woman are not dirty. It's the wrong place and the wrong time that's filthy. It's outside of God's boundaries, outside of God's garden, which is polluting and defiling. If you're married, sex is a beautiful thing. You should practice it as you're able frequently. However, there are often problems that come into a couple's relationship when the boundaries of the garden break down. Solomon actually has a whole letter in the Bible. There's a whole book in the Bible that's referring to this. It's the Song of Solomon. Solomon describes fences in the garden, which is symbolic language for the love and the intimacy between a husband and a wife. And apparently there were gaps in the fences in Solomon's parable. And through the gaps come what Solomon calls little foxes in the vineyard. These foxes are alien predators and foreign agents that come in and destroy the grapevines of marital intimacy. The love life of a husband and a wife is quickly eroded, according to Solomon, by such foxes. What to do? Well, a husband and wife need to take up a bag of nails and a couple of hammers and some wood and go out and repair the fence around the vineyard so that those foxes can't come in. That's a, a godly boundary to the garden, and it's the active maintenance that James is describing here. Not just anger, I think, but James is referring to sexual sin. By the way, Paul's most famous list of fruit of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians 5. And if you go look and count, I think there's about there's nine fruits of the Spirit. I think this is about 14 fruits of the flesh. More than half of them are related to anger. This is Galatians 5. And the other half are related to sexual sin. So filth is very appropriate to see in this word for, for dirt or filth the sins of anger and the sins of lust. We'll call it Sixth Commandment sins and Seventh Commandment sins. But there's more, because beyond these two specific areas, James says you must put off rampant wickedness. Rampant wickedness basically means everything around us. It's all over the place. No matter where you look, there is sin. We live in a sinful, hostile world that is extremely negative towards positive, fruitful Christian growth. All these things need to be resisted, put off, and set aside. And instead, you need to receive with meekness the Word of God. In conclusion, producing righteous fruit involves taking care with a number of things. In one of his letters, Paul puts it this way, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Just as you've received the Holy Spirit, now surrender your life to the control of the Holy Spirit. Just as you have been baptized with Christ and clothed with His righteousness, put off the rampant wickedness and the filth and put on the full armor of God, including the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation. And that's how you produce righteous fruit. You stay in the garden, God's community, the church, 
You maintain the proper temperature, as especially it relates to trusting God with your plans and not permitting the wrath of man to blur your vision and to take you out of your focus on the Lord. You remember the goal, which is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not your own. And finally, you actively put away the filthy weeds, which are good in their place, but in the garden of God defile many and hinder and stunt and thwart the growth of the fruit that he desires. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow in prayer, we thank you for providing us with such a remarkable picture of the growth that you desire to see in us. It it truly is like a garden. Thank you for teaching us your word and showing us, so many of us, Lord, these are, this is not new information. I dare say there's not a single person here who hasn't been overcome with anger, perhaps even this week, and have been reminded about its destructive power. Lord, we need that meekness which can come only from the Holy Spirit, the implanted word which you have so lovingly and powerfully placed within us. We need to once again commit ourselves to receiving it and cultivating it. That the righteousness of God might be produced in us and in the world we live in. We desperately need this. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.